you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Tonight on The Readout. I've made a commitment to the American people, but most importantly, the citizens of Fulton County, that um, we were going to be making some big uh, decisions regarding the election investigation and that I would do that before September the 1st of 2023. And I'm going to hold true to that commitment. We've been working for two and a half years. And we're ready to go. That was Fulton County DA Fannie Willis last month. And tonight, there are indications that the fourth indictment of Donald Trump may be imminent. It's time for election interference in Georgia. Also tonight, Judge Tanya Chutkin warned Trump against making inflammatory statements, which he proceeded to ignore. So what, if anything, is going to be done about it? And despite all of that, Trump still appears to be the Republican Party's inevitable nominee. His dominance over DeSantis and the rest of the Republican field was on full display this weekend in Iowa. We begin tonight with Fulton County, Georgia, where Donald Trump could face a fourth indictment. That's four Possibly any moment now. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis appears poised to issue a charging decision on Donald Trump's alleged efforts to subvert election results. At this hour, a grand jury in Atlanta is still hearing evidence and the presiding judge's courtroom remains open. It's a sign that the grand jury meeting today is trying to power through the remaining testimony ahead of a vote and potential hand up of indictments tonight. Many signs pointed to Willis moving faster than initially expected. Key witnesses in the probe were spotted at the Fulton County Courthouse, including two former Democratic state legislators, as well as journalist George Cheedy, who was subpoenaed for witnessing a meeting at the Georgia State Capitol where Trump supporters signed documents falsely claiming that Trump won the election. Cheedy told NBC News that he was called to appear before the grand jury today after previously being told he didn't have to show up until tomorrow. He also posted on social media, quote, change of plans, going to court today. They're moving faster than they thought. Same goes for former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, also met with grand jurors today ahead of schedule, which, of course, brings us to the Trump of it all. Trump is doing what he always does, lashing out at his perceived enemies by posting all cap screeds on that dollar store Twitter he's got called True Social. That includes unleashing a tirade against Jeff Duncan, who is a Trump critic, and trying to intimidate him by saying the former lieutenant governor of Georgia shouldn't testify. This morning, Trump attacked D.A. Willis, calling her a phony. He also went after Tanya Chutkin, the judge in the federal January 6th case, calling her highly partisan and very biased and unfair. Look, just days ago, George Chutkin warned Trump against making inflammatory statements that can intimidate witnesses in that trial. It's a warning that Trump ignored. Shocker, because intimidating judges and witnesses is, you know, the kind of thing that will put you and I in jail has been something he's been doing for years. He started back in 2016 when he attacked U.S. District Court Judge Gonzalo Curiel, an Indiana native, saying he could not act as an impartial judge of Trump because he was a Mexican-American. All the way up until this year, when Trump threatened Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, the first prosecutor to bring a criminal case against a current or former American president. So let's begin with NBC News correspondent Blaine Alexander, who's outside the courthouse in Atlanta. Blaine, thanks for joining us tonight on The Readout. 
What is the mood down there and, and what sort of the timeline we're seeing? Last we checked in, they're at uh, maybe the seventh witness testimony and they're maybe up to 10. Yeah, well, Jason, the mood is anxiously waiting, anxiously waiting, and it's hot outside and watching to see what happens. But the timeline to get to the heart of your question really is that we are just kind of waiting to see what happens. I just spoke to the source who has direct knowledge of these proceedings, and I understand from the source that they are currently hearing from witness number seven, uh, that witness number six wrapped up. Uh, and that witness number seven is now on the stand, has been on the stand since around 6.30 or so. I also have guidance from the source that the DA's office is very much trying to wrap up these proceedings this evening, wrap up tonight. But of course, all of that timing remains fluid. So as we continue to watch and wait and see, there are a couple of things that we're looking at. We know that the courthouse is still open. We're still able to come and go from the courthouse that's notable. Typically here in Fulton County, the courthouse closes at five o'clock on the dot. But the fact that it's still open, security guards tell our team that as long as a grand jury is in session, the doors will remain unlocked. So certainly that is a very strong indication. Again, they're trying to muscle through this, get through what they need to get through and likely to get to some sort of a resolution tonight. Jason. Blaine, this is the big question that I have, because it's been it's sort of been pervading the air throughout this entire uh, sort of process, certainly in the state of Georgia. What is the security like on the ground? Are there guards anywhere? Uh, has Brian Kemp called in the National Guard? I mean, when this, if an indictment comes down tonight, are there real concerns and is there sort of heightened security in the area? Oh, security around the courthouse is very tight, Jason. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that Fonnie Willis tried to put into place months ago. She said, hey, these are the dates where the indictment is likely going to be handed up. Make sure you have your security in order. And we've seen that over the past few weeks, over this kind of time bracket that she set out. Uh, you know, security right now uh, is heavier than I have probably ever seen. It. And I've reported in front of this courthouse for the better part of two years. So the fact that both sides of Prior Street, the main street that runs in front of the courthouse, is blocked off, the fact that there are barricades down the front of the courthouse and all around the courthouse, no parking around the courthouse. Typically, we see vehicles able to park. They're also making provisions over by the Georgia State Capitol as well. And when we spoke with the sheriff about this, uh, he made it clear that, yes, there are threats. There are threats that come to Fonnie Willis. She's not shied away from talking about that. There are threats that come to the sheriff himself and that they chase each one of them down. So in addition to the security that we do see, there's a lot of security we don't see. We know that there are plainclothes officers that are mixed among us here in this kind of judicial complex here in downtown Atlanta. We know that they're, of course, checking on threats. And we know that Fonnie Willis has increased security as well, Jason. Thank you, Blaine Alexander. Thank you so much for sort of setting the scene and setting us up for tonight on The Readout. Let's bring in Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and an MSNBC contributor. Joyce Vance, MSNBC legal analyst, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Alabama Law. And Gwen Keyes Fleming, former district attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia. Greg, I'll start with you. This is major. We were just talking to Blaine Alexander about security on the ground. What is sort of the political mood right now in Metro Atlanta? Uh, you know, are, are there sort of talking points that the local Republican Party has been handing out to state legislators and members? Are, are police sort of more concerned and police unions have been making statements? What's the sort of feeling on the ground in the city? Jason, it's really tense, but I'd say Republicans want to talk about anything 
but this. You're not hearing Governor Brian Kemp, you're not hearing other Republican statewide officials talk about these potential indictments because they'd rather talk about anything but this right now. They'd rather talk about how this is, a, in their view, a politicized prosecution and really steer clear for it. Remember, a lot of these senior Republicans here in Georgia are no fans of Donald Trump. I mean, former gov uh, Governor Brian Kemp, former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, they were all targets of his bullying campaign, of his pressure campaign to overturn the Georgia election in 2020. Joyce, I, this, this is the case that I think is the most practical and probably one of the easiest for people to understand. Just sort of give our audience a, a, a breakdown here. What are we looking at um, with this sort of Georgia prosecution? What are, what are the witnesses doing now? Where is this in the process? Is it just they finish the witnesses, uh, everybody takes a quick break, and then they vote? Is it uh, they could send you know, the grand jury home to sleep it off tonight and then vote tomorrow? Where are we sort of in the process? Sure. You know, Jason, a lot of it is in the hands of the grand jurors, because even after the presentation of evidence by the DA is complete, it will be up to them to vote. They will be able to take time to talk things over if they decide that they need to do that. They can ask the DA for more evidence or for more information about some of the charges if they feel like they don't have enough. The standard of proof is very low for an indictment. It's probable cause. That's much lower than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the standard for conviction at trial. It means that there's a reason to believe that a crime was committed and the people being charged with it were, in fact, the people that committed it. But it's not the sort of all-encompassing decision that we ask trial juries to make. So many times a grand jury will vote fairly quickly after they hear the evidence, but there are no guarantees in that regard. And this grand jury might decide for any number of reasons, ranging from the mundane, like someone needs to go home and, and tend to a child or, or fix a meal, um, to something complicated, like they do want more time before they vote on this most serious of indictments. Um, Gwen, you are a former prosecutor down there. You know the sort of legal system in Georgia uh, better than most. When you look at a case like this and you look at what Fannie Willis has been doing, I, I know this may sound simplistic, but how, how big a squad are we talking about here? Is this, is this Fannie Willis with just a couple of assistants or is it sort of the entire legal apparatus of the state and the county involved in this? Because as you mentioned, we, we started at the top of the show. This has been a two year process. That is a lot of resources for a state to be involved in for something that the entire sort of national zeitgeist rests upon. How big is the group of people working on this case that, that may finally get an indictment tonight? Well, I actually think it's relatively small, even though mm. the Fulton County District Attorney's Office is the largest prosecutor's office in the state. At least it was when I was uh, at the elected DA in neighboring DeKalb County. But I think out of protection for her staff, out of the desire to protect the integrity of the case, uh, it's a small group. Uh, we know that John Floyd, one of the renowned RICO experts on uh, as it relates to Georgia law as part of her team. She also has a gentleman, Mike Carlson, who, with his father, wrote the book on Georgia evidence. So I think she's been very deliberate about who she is selecting to be a part of this effort. And it demonstrates to me that she's got a team that really is uh, comprised of the best prosecutors within the state evaluating this fact, these facts in the law. 
Let's talk a little bit about RICO charges in the state of Georgia. So Racketeering Influence and Corruption Organizations Act, it was founded in 1970, but apparently Georgia's RICO laws are a bit broader than usual. Take us a little bit through what RICO is like in this particular state and how that may differ as far as the kinds of charges or the kinds of things that Trump could be indicted on. So I'll let Joyce speak to the federal RICO statute, but the the Georgia statute is one of the broadest in the country in that it lists about 43 different predicate crimes or the types of acts that would make up this pattern of racketeering activity that would be violative of the statute. And so for this case, it includes things like false statements, influencing witnesses, possibly computer trespass. And so again, we won't know for sure or how broad the RICO indictment might be unless and until we actually see the physical indictment document itself. But one thing to recognize is Georgia's RICO statute does not include crimes under the election code, Title 21. So things like conspiracy to commit election fraud or uh, solicitation of a violation of oath of office or interference with elections, those and other crimes that are not listed in the RICO statute could be included separately in an indictment. I think it's also important to note that forgery is one of the predicate acts under RICO. And so potentially, if DA Fonnie Willis is looking to include the fake elector scheme, that could also be brought under the RICO umbrella. Yes, I'm looking here. It says forgery, false statements, computer trespassing. I'm not exactly sure what that means unless you're just going to Best Buy and take something. Joyce, uh, if, if you could, just for, for specificity, Kate, what is the difference? What, how is the federal RICO statute a bit more strict. What are some things that that wouldn't be included in a federal RICO statute so we can understand sort of the wider range that's happening here in Georgia, potentially? Sure. So Gwen is nice to defer to me on this one. We actually worked together for almost the entire eight years of the Obama administration. Um, and she knows as, as well as I do in this regard that Georgia's law is actually more prosecutor friendly than the federal law would be. The main reason that that's the case is because under federal law, you have to prove up something called an enterprise, and that can be complicated because RICO is designed in essence to let prosecutors uh, prosecute, hold accountable a group of people that are engaging in crime together on an ongoing basis. That may be a problem here in the Georgia statute because in essence, it's likely that Fonnie Willis will argue that Trump and some of his Confederates amounted to a criminal enterprise. But as Gwen makes clear, there are more what's called predicate acts, those crimes, that conduct that they're engaging together. Georgia law is more expansive. So, for instance, forgeries um, that were used on some of the fake elector significance, or to your point, Jason, computer trespass, which means unlawful access to a computer and could easily encompass the conduct that we've heard about in Coffee County where sensitive software was um, accessed. Lots of different possibilities for how to bring all of this conduct together. And Fonnie Willis has gone on record. She's, she's no stranger to using this statute. She's used it aggressively. And she says she likes it because it allows her to give the jury the entire picture of the group's conduct. That's really what RICO is about. Instead of 
limiting and cabining the evidence that the government can put on in front of a jury, say to just very strictly, this is the call that the former president had with Brad Raffensperger, where he asked for votes. This permits prosecutors to more expansively say this is the full range of conduct and this is why this group amounted to a RICO enterprise. So, Greg, there's a couple of characters and, and sort of witnesses and people involved uh, in what happened in 2020 with Trump attempted to influence the election that, that I want us to pay a little bit of attention to. So you, obviously you have Brad Raffensperger, who was the uh, secretary of state, who got the phone call. Hey, I need you to help me find 1100 votes. You also have former lieutenant governor Jeff Duncan. Now, he's he's very interesting because not only is he sort of involved uh, in this case, but he's also someone who it appears as though this investigation may have derailed his political career. He decided, hey, I don't want to run for re-election. How have people uh, who, who are sort of involved in this, who are elected officials, how has this affected them on the ground? Are there other people who, should this indictment come down, they'll be stepping away from or leaning into state politics? What might the results be sort of at the, the state capital level there in Atlanta? Yeah, Jason, I'm glad you brought up the former lieutenant governor because he just left the courthouse behind me after a testimony before the grand jury. He wouldn't say exactly what he told the grand jurors, but he did say that the nation is at a pivot point, that we're at a turning point, and he said Republicans should move on from Donald Trump. This is something that we in Georgia have heard for the last two-plus years from the former lieutenant governor. He is a conservative Republican. He is an ally. He was an ally of Donald Trump. But around the 2020 election, he had a very visible break with the then-president, and he started talking about moving forward, having Republicans move beyond Donald Trump's rhetoric and his obsession with the 2020 election. Uh, in his view, Republicans should move forward and think about the issues, the economy, uh, public safety, other issues that he thinks Republicans should focus on. And as you mentioned, he decided not to run for a second term as lieutenant governor facing Donald Trump's wrath. He said he has no regrets about that decision, but a Trump-backed supporter, a uh, Trump-backed candidate named Burt Jones, who was also a fake elector, he ended up winning George's number two job instead of Jeff Duncan. Our panel is sticking with us. We'll be right back. This is Jason Johnson sitting in for Joy Reid on The Readout. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Key witnesses in the probe into whether Donald Trump and his allies interfered with the 2020 presidential election in Georgia testified today at the Fulton County Courthouse. Prosecutors appear poised to seek indictments imminently. I'm back with Greg Bluestein, Joyce Vance and Gwen Keyes Fleming. This is uh, this is amazing. Um, Gwen, I'm going to start with you I'll play some sound from Donald Trump. He's talking here about the fact that 
you know, under no circumstances uh, is, is he going to take any sort of plea deal. And I want, I want you to sort of give us your thoughts on the other side as to how that would even work in a case like this. Is there any chance you take a plea deal in Georgia? Plea deals. We did nothing wrong. We don't ever take yes, a plea sir. deal. Yes, sir. We don't take plea deals. It's a wise guy question. Are you just a wise guy? We don't take plea deals because I did nothing wrong. It's called election interference. I mean, could he even work out a plea deal with Fonnie Willis at this point? Because it, it, it seems unlikely. But what, what would even be a possibility at this point? Well, let's first start off with the present premise that everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and obviously, everybody is entitled to counsel. So that would be a strategic decision that any of the defendants would have to make with their own counsel after evaluating the facts and evidence that the DA would be poised to present. So it's difficult to even talk about the possibility of a, a plea deal when we don't yet have the indictment. We need to see who's going to be charged. I know we have speculation. Uh, and obviously, we have some window from the foreperson of the special grand jury as to the number of people. But let's see what the charges are. And inevitably, after you get the list of charges and you see who's indicted, there may be some deals back and forth in terms of various defendants agreeing to testify on behalf of the state. I think we've seen some of that with respect uh, to some of the uh, folks that were part of the alleged fake electors scam in terms of them being granted immunity. Uh, so all of those questions, I think, are premature. We need to see what that indictment looks like and if there is an actual true bill uh, from the grand juror. So let's see what happens, whether it's tonight or, or possibly tomorrow. Joyce, following up with the same idea. So we don't know. Obviously, Gwen just said we don't know what the indictment could be. We don't know if the indictment's coming down tonight. The idea of sort of talking about, uh, you know, working out of plea deals, it may be slightly premature. But here's the thing. Does the fact that Donald Trump, not just that he was obviously asked the question, but does the fact that he sort of so aggressively says, I don't take deals, I don't take deals, I don't take deals. Do you think that indicates anything about how strongly he feels his defense is going to be able to stand up for him in this particular case. Donald Trump is notorious for saying, I don't make deals, and then he cuts deals with people. So is this a, a, a sort of just a political move on his behalf, verbal move on his behalf, or could it reflect some real confidence in his legal defense? Right. So, Jason, I'll answer that by saying I've had plenty of defendants during my career who started out talking just like that, tough talk, didn't do anything wrong, not pleading guilty. And you would wait and they would have the opportunity to read the indictment and to see the evidence, much like Gwen is suggesting. And they would realize at some point that a plea deal was in their best interests. For instance, here, the RICO statute has a five-year mandatory minimum, but the sentence can be much longer than that. It depends on how the judge evaluates the case at sentencing. It's very likely we'll see some charges against the former president that will potentially carry a lesser sentence. A normal defendant, a typical defendant, might reach the point where they decided it was in their best interests to plead to one of those lesser charges. Donald Trump, I think, is constitutionally incapable of pleading guilty because to do that, he will have to stand in a courtroom and say under oath that he is pleading guilty because he is guilty and for no other reason. I think it's very unlikely that we'll ever see that. Greg, I want to play you some sound from D.A. Fonnie Willis talking about what her experiences have been like 
during this investigation and then get your thoughts on sort of what the temperature is on the ground. All the typical racial slurs that you can imagine, um, um, they're very uh, grotesque things. You know, we're on family television. I don't even know that I like to say all of them, but slave horror is one of them. I've probably been called the N-word more times in the last two and a half years than most 100 people combined. Yeah, I used to live in Cobb County, and uh, you hear that word a lot, a lot more than people would want to believe for the city too busy to hate. Greg, what does that say about the temperature on the ground? And we, we already talked to Blaine Alexander about security, but you know, are there worries that people are like running by and chanting this at the courthouse? Uh, is it just letters and emails that be going to D.A. Willis's office? Like, where is the sort of racial component on the ground or is it hidden and only directed at the people directly working on the case? Jason, I think it's the latter, but there's a reason why there's such high security at the courthouse behind me. There's a reason why streets have been closed, why staffers, courtroom staffers have been told starting last week to work virtually because they are worried about threats and violence. And there's also a reason why even the state capitol is going to be. There's the gates are going up around the state capitol. Workers at the state Georgia House have been told to work from home. So there's, they're, they're taking precautions because, unfortunately, this isn't new, but I think the intensity has ratcheted up uh, to a new level surrounding uh, the, the potential indictment of the former president. And, and Gwen, I don't want to take you down a, a, an unhappy memory lane, but on the scale of sort of abusive language or hostility that you have may received in your former job working in DeKalb County, simply being a black woman in a position of authority uh, sometimes makes you the target of this kind of hostility. You know, what's normal? Right. What, what's what's a normal level of racial abuse that somebody receives in your position compared to what you think might be happening now, according to D.A. Willis? Well, I think it's challenging for any first. Uh, and But I can say that times have changed significantly. So I was the D.A. back in 2005. Uh, back then, the the attacks that I would got were much more subtle. I will have to admit, compared to possibly what D.A. Willis is going through now. And while we had several high profile cases, they were not ones where the entire nation was focused on what we were doing. And so I take the D.A. at her word that she is seeing the, the level of vitriol that few have experienced. And I really think that that's a sad thing when you have men and women, but particularly those that put themselves forth for elected office uh, or appointed office, but especially elected officials who are out there trying to serve the citizens. She obviously won the, the confidence and trust of all of the voters at, or many of the voters in Fulton County. Uh, and all she is trying to do is serve and follow her oath and investigate the facts to be able to arrive at a decision as to whether the law has been broken and if she finds that there's sufficient evidence to establish that, then go ahead and prosecute to be able to hold that person or those individuals accountable. That is the epitome of service. Uh, and she is doing it a great sacrifice to herself and her family and her staff. Thank you, Greg Bluestein and Gwen Keys Fleming. Joyce Vance is sticking with me. Up next on The Readout. Former President Trump is like a child. You tell him not to do something like take government documents or pay off sex workers or threaten witnesses, and he'll do it, even if a judge tells him not to. 
but will he actually face any consequences? We'll discuss it when we get right back. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It should surprise no one that Donald Trump has gone on the attack against the prosecutors and judges who are trying to hold him accountable. This has always been his standard practice. For many, including nearly the entire Republican organization, this behavior has become normalized, imitated, and even praised. Although for anyone not named Trump, you can bet that there will be consequences, fines, or possible jail time. Look, I'm old enough to remember way back to three days ago when the judge overseeing the federal trial into Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election ended her first hearing with this warning to both parties. Quote, the more a party makes inflammatory statements about this case, the greater the urgency will be that we proceed to trial quickly. Judge Chanya Chutkin added, I caution all of you and your client, therefore, to take special care in your public statements about this case. I will take whatever measures are necessary to safeguard the integrity of these proceedings. Look, Judge Chutkin invoked the well-known legal precedent of keep my name out your mouth. But of course, it didn't work because Trump was on the attack in less than 48 hours. Yesterday, he reposted a photo of the judge that was and referred to her as an Obama left-wing activist judge and falsely claimed that she openly admitted she's running election interference against Trump. Not leaving well enough alone, at 1.14 this morning, Trump also posted that she was, quote, very biased and unfair and that she obviously wanted him behind bars. Back with me is Joyce Vance and joining me is Renato Mariotti former federal prosecutor and legal affairs columnist for Politico magazine. Look, uh, I, I will start with this because this just, this galls me. Renato, you have a former president of the United States who is actively, actively, we're, we're beyond poking the bear, right? This is not, this is not Yogi and picnic baskets. He's clubbing the bear over the head by constantly attacking the judge who is actually overseeing a case about him trying to violently overthrow the country. I'm going to ask the question that I get asked by regular people all the time. Why isn't he in jail already? Why, why, why has he not already been thrown in jail for making these kinds of statements? He has a history of witness and judge intimidation, at least verbally. Well, I actually think in this case, it's because Judge Chutkin is actually very smart, savvy, experienced litigator. And she knows exactly what levers to pull to hold his feet to the fire. 
I mean, you read that quote a moment ago, and I think that speaks volumes. What she's saying is, I'm not going to get involved in some First Amendment argument with you in the middle of a presidential campaign where you're going to give some argument that somehow I'm silencing your free speech right. What we're going to do to solve this problem is we're just going to get to trial ASAP. And I think one thing we know is that Donald Trump's entire plan is to try to delay this past the election. And he, she was basically letting him know and putting a shot across the bow. I have the power here. And at the end of the day, if you don't want to have a very, very speedy trial, if you want time to prepare, if you want extra time and extra accommodations, you're not going to have any nonsense. I, I actually thought that was a brilliant move on her part. And that's the sort of thing, in my opinion, that is what's going to ultimately move the lever. And because I think Donald Trump listens to actions and power, not words. Joyce, so basically what we're hearing is Judge Chutkin, she did the reverse of what parents do, right? It's like, if, you, if you're not quiet, I will turn this car around. She basically said, I will drive there faster if you guys keep talking. So here's the thing. What would that actually look like? What, what is a speedy trial? I mean, because at this particular point, I mean, it's been two years since the attack. How could she actually move this forward? Would she have the power to say, you know, uh, Trump's legal team doesn't have as much time to do research? Could she say, you know, I'm not going to let as many witnesses? What would speeding it up actually look like if Trump continues to violate the protective order? So her obligation is to guarantee Trump's lawyers and the former president have adequate time to prepare for trial, that his due Mm -hmm. process rights are observed. But that's not a set number of days like the 70 days called for in the Speedy Trial Act. There's a lot of judicial discretion involved. And so, for instance, instead of accommodating requests for week-long vacations ahead of trial or time to attend family gatherings, she might say, sorry, we're out. We can't take those sorts of detours because we need to go ahead and get a jury struck and in the box before your client can taint the jury pool anymore. And she could insist on a a fairly straight-line schedule going forward. Uh, To Renato's point, she is an experienced and very smart jurist, and she will not permit herself to become agitated because Donald Trump notoriously likes to try to poke the tiger. I guess we say it a little bit differently in my house. It's a tiger, not a bear. Um, But either way, federal judges are skilled in avoiding that provocation. You know, we saw her do it with Judge Curiel poking, um, you know, fun at his uh, at his Mexican heritage. She did it with Judge Tiger, one of the judges in California who was involved in the immigration litigation. What we've seen from the federal judiciary is great restraint, great professionalism and an understanding that this is not some sort of a fight between them and Donald Trump. This is about delivering the people's justice. I think we'll see her call him back into the courtroom. She may admonish him. It will be professional. It will not be personal. But judges believe in progressive discipline if we're talking about her and and the way one might interact with a small child. And she will be very explicit with him before she goes to the next level of disciplining him in order to ensure that everyone involved can get a fair trial. That means the people, you and me, as much as it does the defendant in this case. Renata, we're going to move to another judge right now. The judge overseeing Trump's hush money case has just come out and said, look, I'm not going to recuse myself. Judge Juan Merchan has said, uh, you know, there were accusations from Trump's team. They had argued that the judge's daughter, 
uh, had political and financial interests because at one point she worked for a firm that worked for Joe Biden. And he said, yeah, too bad. That's my daughter. I'm still going to work on this case. I, I've got to ask you, I can play devil's advocate here. I, I mean, is there is there a potential problem here? Is there is this something that Trump's team could argue again? Because frankly, if there were a judge investigating Joe Biden, if there were a judge investigating a prominent Democrat uh, and they had a son or daughter or a spouse that had worked for the campaign of the opposition, I think that's a reasonable question, isn't it? Look, it's certainly uh, something that should be raised and we should consider, let's say, the appearance issues. Uh, but I will just say a couple of things here. First of all, this would not be the, the, the child working directly for, in this case, Joe Biden. It's her law firm, right, working right. for uh, Biden. But I, look, ultimately, at the end of the day, judges make decisions regarding whether they recuse or not. And typically, courts are very deferential uh, when, let's say, a court of appeal is looking at the issue of whether or not a judge is obligated to recuse. They, re- they very much defer to that judge's judgment. And that's what I expect to be the case here. And so, you know, I think Donald Trump is going up against the judiciary uh, that ultimately, I agree with Joyce's uh, sentiment here, the judiciary is not only professional, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the judiciary wants to move cases along themselves because they have a lot of defendants who need justice. And, you know, a lot of criminal defendants don't like their judge. Uh, so they don't, the rules are set up to make it very difficult for criminal defendants to get rid of the judge and the second judge, uh, second guess the judge's decisions regarding whether to recuse. And I expect that to be the case here as well. Thank you, Joyce Vance, Ant Monado Mariotti. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on The Readout. Up next... Former President Donald Trump made his grand entrance at the Iowa State Fair on his private plane, treating the campaign like he's already won the nomination. Is it that inevitable? We'll be right back. This is Jason Johnson sitting in on The Readout. The state of Iowa has been the birthplace of many imaginary characters over the years. There's Captain James T. Kirk, the Avenger Hawkeye, even Miss Piggy. And in the real world, Iowa State Fair has been able to make us believe in imaginary political characters like wannabe frontrunners Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee and Fred Thompson. You see, Iowa is a political field of dreams, if you will, where candidates go in hoping to come out as a real political boy or girl. That's certainly what Ron DeSantis thought before he was quickly reminded that the Iowa GOP only has eyes for Trump. Oh, there were candidates who went and rapped to Eminem's Lose Yourself and Nikki Haley engaged in thinly veiled ageism, but none of them could match the power of the twice impeached, thrice indicted former president. Donald Trump was at the fair for all of two hours, but in that short amount of time, he managed to prove that his hold over the Republican base is as solid as ever, as hordes of MAGA faithful followed him around, lined up for autographs, and chanted things like, we love Trump. Even brought an entourage of Florida Congress members with him, seemingly to troll Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It was a spectacle that made one thing exceedingly clear. Donald Trump's nomination on the Republican ticket appears to be inevitable. Joining me now is Ty Rushing, senior editor at the Iowa Starting Line. Ty, thank you so much for joining me tonight on The Readout. Um, you covered the Iowa State Fair. Is this your first state fair, or have you been to previous ones to sort of compare the energy of this last weekend to, to previous state fairs? 
Uh, so I've been in Iowa for 10 years. So I've seen quite a few candidates at the Iowa State Fair. But uh, this last weekend, I have to say the energy was unlike anything we've ever experienced. And I talked to a bunch of other veteran Iowa political journalists about this as well. And we thought it was going to be an attendance record. It was so just overly crowded. I mean, all the food lines were packed. I mean, and candidates were just running everywhere. So you had a run in with one particular candidate says here that the DeSantis campaign team contacted law enforcement to prohibit you and other reporters from starting line from attending his events. First off, how did that play out and what was the justification? There was even a statement released uh, by the Ohio Association of, of, of African-American Journalists. What happened? And, and are you used to this sort of hostility from candidates when they come to the state? No, no. Uh, you know, I am not used to that kind of hostility at all from any sort of candidate in the state, regardless of their political affiliation. And I I still have never received an answer from the campaign on why I was barred from entering. They put that statement out saying it's because I registered as a uh, an attendant rather than media. But other than that, and but no one ever said anything to me. There was no words exchanged. There was just like I showed up for the second of three events I planned on covering DeSantis events I planned on covering that day. And the next thing I know, oh, cool. Here's the sheriff's deputies. So and I meant to say the the Iowa uh, NABJ. So there were a lot of different things, you know, Iowa caucuses, sort of Iowa state fairs. Lots of people do all sorts of crazy things. Who do you think? Given that Donald Trump is dominating the field, who do you think actually helped themselves? Was it Nikki Haley? Was it was it Vivek rapping? What was there any candidate who actually went around the state fair and demonstrated to people that should Trump tumble or should Trump decide to make them a vice presidential pick that they can sort of shine above the rest of the candidates? Yeah, I mean, we still got Tim Scott tomorrow, so we got to see how that plays out. But like, I think Vivek uh, really shined at the fair as well. Because, I mean, you know, bad rapping aside, that man was everywhere. He was meeting everyone, talking to everyone. He did the fair side chat with the governor. He did the soapbox like he didn't stop. Uh, one of my coworkers told me that his team was telling him he needed to take a break. And I don't think he did. That, yeah, he worked his butt off. And even DeSantis was uh, doing a lot more crowd work than he's uh, like he did when he first started his campaign. I mean, he had his kids with him. He had Casey with him. You know, when he was doing his fair side chat with the governor, his son had blue cotton candy or a snow cone around his mouth. Uh, he was putting in a lot of work. But thing about it is, no matter how much work he put in, he still got overshadowed by that one guy. <laughs> so here's the thing also. And I, and I think this is important, sort of moving out of, of, of the Iowa State Fair and what people will do next. Iowa is a place that a lot of candidates like to make multiple trips to in order to sort of establish themselves. And even though we're still several months away from the Iowa caucuses, people are trying to get their teams on the ground. Given how much money is sucked up by the former twice impeached president, given the sort of faltering uh, that we've seen in the DeSantis campaign, what are people's teams looking like on the ground? Does Tim Scott have an established campaign headquarters? Does he have people out working the crowds on his behalf? Or are we still sort of seeing a point where they're still establishing their offices and still attempting to get to know the voters and haven't quite set up their campaign teams? Yeah, I think a lot of other folks are still just kind of putting in their work and like, you know, getting that thing established, getting set up. Uh, but like I hear there's a lot of ground well support coming for Tim Scott uh, because, you know, he tells his story really well. He's done a l couple of well attended events 
And I actually heard a little bit of buzz about him from another reporter who covered it, uh, an early stop he made in Iowa. And uh, this was during the legislative session. I kind of like was in disbelief a little bit. I'm like, really? He's he's got some kind of support like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm hearing I'm even hearing that from some Democratic, uh, some Democratic uh, people who are saying that the one they're really worried about is him and not DeSantis. The idea that Iowa could be the field of dreams for Tim Scott is hilarious to me. Thank you so much, Ty Rushing, for joining us this evening and reporting from Iowa. This is Jason Johnson sitting in for Joy Reid. We'll be right back. Right now, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is still presenting her case against Donald Trump to a Georgia grand jury. We'll have much more on that throughout the night. And be sure to tune in at nine for Rachel Maddow's exclusive interview with former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. It's Secretary Clinton's first TV appearance since Trump's federal indictments. You will not want to miss it. That's tonight's readout. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 